Hi guys, it's Emmett. Oh, it was a cold morning, but it's warming up, and apparently the polar vortex that's been pushing down into the northeast U.S. and causing unseasonably cold weather is now going to be moving on, thanks to uh, whatever the blockage is in Greenland dissipating. <clears throat> so, uh, it's warming up, and it feels like uh, spring is going to be here, which is good, because everything has kind of been stalled for the last week or more. Um, I've been batting an email back and forth with a, an old customer of mine. I used to have a business where I'd go and mow people's properties with a scythe back when I was trying to figure out how the heck to earn a living. And I could charge people $30 an hour to have me handle situations where they didn't want to have a weed whacker do it and it was too small for a tractor and kind of too large or weird for a lawnmower and that was good the spoon carving eventually took over as being a better use of my time at any rate uh this uh one customer um who had what she thought was wild carrot on her property and was taking over these this sort of perennial zone where their property used to be owned by a botanist who was a collector who had collected all these cool things from around the world. And it was being choked out by this wild carrot and to a lesser extent by goldenrod. And so I would come in and use the scythe to chop back all this other stuff to essentially release the, these other things and let them flourish uh, and expand their zone. When I decided to stop doing the scything service, I said, you know, look, you can you can hire someone with a weed whacker to do this. You can hire someone, you know, you can buy yourself a scythe to do this. Um, and she just wrote to me to say that she just found out that it's not wild carrot, it's actually poison hemlock. Uh, and... Uh, and that it's just kind of a nastier plant than any of us had really realized. And she was asking my advice about what to do about it. Um, and I just wrote back to her that I think in this instance that using an herbicide like Roundup might be the appropriate path for her, given that it's a relatively small, finite area where she's not planning on growing food. And it would be nice to simply kill this thing and be able to expand the the plantings that she already has and this is something I've talked about before I think maybe just in an Instagram post maybe never in the podcast but so I, I used to be an organic vegetable farmer my Christmas tree farm is not certified but but I've I've never used uh, anything on the trees the one time that I've used Roundup has been at my house because when we bought our house, the woods were solid wall-to-wall -wall carpet poison ivy, really lush poison ivy. And I thought through my options and I thought, you know, I could put on a Tyvek suit and go rip it out and deal with the poison ivy rash and it would still come back. I could try using vinegar or all these, these lesser effective things for years or I could use Roundup 
once heavily and then probably have to do some spot cleanup for two or three years afterwards and just win and make it so that my kids can run around through our small section of woods. It was maybe half an acre. And I decided to go for the roundup. And I'm so glad I did. There are now spring ephemerals that are growing all over the forests that may or may not have been there, but they certainly weren't affected by me killing the roundup. And they've certainly been released by not having... uh, by not having the poison ivy there. And believe me, I understand the effect that insecticides and herbicides have on insect populations and all that. And, and on the whole, I think it is not a good policy to use them. I battle multiflora rose at the Christmas tree farm, and I would much rather just cut it and cut it and cut it and cut it to death. But... There are certain things, and poison ivy is one of them, that I feel like it would be a good use of something like Roundup to use it to really knock back poison ivy on its heels. Because at least around me, there are places where it has gotten way out of control. Places where uh, this landscape would have been used and poison ivy would not have been allowed to get to the level that it is, is just now a carpet of poison ivy. And unlike other invasive plants, you can't really deal with poison ivy in any other effective way because it's dangerous. Even if you decide to rip it out and then burn it, the the smoke can be dangerous if inhaled. My best friend growing up uh, lived on a dairy farm, and I remember he got poison ivy in his throat one time from breathing smoke that was burning poison ivy. Um, And I'm aware of all of the risks that go along with and the terrible costs that go along with using uh, chemical pesticides. In fact, when I was a property steward for a local nonprofit before I started um, carving spoons professionally, I was asked at the beginning of this job, would you be willing to get a... a uh, pesticide applicator's license, and I said, I really don't want to, but I will at least consider it and pursue it. Um, My younger daughter was a baby at the time, I really didn't want to do it, and here was the funny thing, when I went to, you have to do all this uh, studying before you take the exam, and guess who wrote all of the information about the, the effects that use of these chemicals can have on local insect populations. It was my dad back in the 70s. His first job out of grad school was working for the state in the capacity of, uh, I'm not, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it was basically helping them figure out, helping farmers figure out uh, what the right move was and how to use pesticides safely. And so as I was doing the studying, it was literally my dad from before I was born telling me, this is a terrible idea, don't do it. And I took the exam, passed it, and then put my foot down and said, nope, I'm not going to do it for you guys. I'll leave before I do it. And they said, okay, you don't have to do it. (laughs) So I feel like I have a more nuanced view of this than 
many people who either have drunk the Kool-Aid and just think, you know, whatever, we should use it, or who uh, are dogmatically against it and don't have any experience or, or training about how to do it safely. I feel like I have a little bit of both. And all of this is a long story to get to a place of talking about the idea of being dogmatic. Certainly the spoon carving scene is a scene rife with dogma about what is acceptable and what is not, what is green woodworking and what is not. And frankly, I feel like whenever someone takes a hard stand, it's just a little bit boring because a hard stand gets you stuck. It doesn't allow you to explore the possible collaboration between two spaces, two technologies, two different ways of doing things. And it's when you can stand on the edge of two things and say, well, that part is, I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and I'll combine them and I get something new and unusual and different. That's when the really interesting stuff happens. It's been shown that a disproportionate number of Nobel laureates are people who have shifted midway through their career to start bringing in another discipline. You know, they're biologists and all of a sudden they start bringing in chemistry or they're physicists and all of a sudden they start pursuing biology and it's it is in the space between those two things that the interesting stuff happens often and and so i think part of why dogma and dogmatic hap- and dogmatic thinking happens is it is a way for people who are really geeking out on something to feel like they get it, that they are part of the culture, that they are like in the club. And so when you repeat something, whether it's you have to use a hardening oil to finish your spoons, or you can't use a bandsaw, or the only good lathe is a pole lathe, When you repeat those ideas, all you're doing is displaying your own inexperience. Because what you'll see is that the most experienced people in any field are always willing to entertain tools and techniques that are considered dogmatically to be outside that of the scene. And that's where the interesting stuff happens, and that's where the culture moves forward. So, you know, I think the other thing about dogma that dogma doesn't do well is recognize that life is rarely black or white. There is a lot of shades of gray and a lot of nuance 
to what is the right thing to do and what are the repercussions of that thing. And sometimes things that we think are black and white, they've just been put in the black and white camp. And if we examine them a little more closely, we recognize that, oh, the here's a great example, actually. We were sitting, eating breakfast this morning, and the kids were asking, you know, why... Why some cereal come in boxes with bags inside and some cereal come with in just bags? Couldn't they do it just in boxes? And we had a whole discussion about how if it was just in a box, it wouldn't stay fresh and how there's some companies that do it in bags and they claim that it's 60% less packaging. And that's certainly true because you have to consider, you know, the cost, the environmental cost of creating the box and the ink and all that. But then... Maisie, Willa, let's go. Hey, Willa, come. Willa, leave it. No. Good girl. You know, but then if you consider the ink that's on the box, well, that same ink is on the bag, so it's nuanced, right? It's not just, oh, it's great. It's, just, it's as though they just took the bag and didn't do anything to it. Willa, come on. Let's go, Willa. You know, maybe... They have to use an ink that is harsher to get it to stick to the plastic versus stick to the... Like, the point is, is that we say that one thing is better than another thing on this certain rubric without necessarily understanding if it is or not. We just tell ourselves that it is, and then it becomes this black and white thing where we think, oh, it is. <clears throat> but, uh, but the truth for everything, is that everything is shades of gray. And until you actually run the numbers, do the science on something in, in a way where you are testing a variable, you don't actually know if that variable is better or worse for that particular thing. We don't actually know if there's more environmental costs to having cereal just in bags versus in boxes and in bags. I don't know, maybe they can use a different type of plastic for the bag that's better if you don't have to put ink on it. And maybe maybe the boxes are recycled material and have a shorter uh, life cycle in the system. I just don't know. And maybe they don't. The point is, is that something that sounds good isn't necessarily true. So... When you stop being dogmatic, I think it naturally shunts you towards the middle of any spectrum because you are less certain about things. You are more willing to see the value of certain things. <clears throat> and, Willa, come on. And I know that that uh, that certainly makes me less willing to pronounce certain things good and certain things bad <clears throat> because I can see the value of both of them. But I do think that you can be non-dogmatic and still have a moral compass. And I think this is where people get themselves stuck. And this is why people resist becoming non-dogmatic, is they worry that, well, if I use Roundup, 
in this instance, does that mean that I've then lost the ability to argue that insecticides are being used way too heavily and should be curtailed? Have I lost the moral high ground? And I don't think that you do. And I think this is the stumbling block for many people is they feel like unless they are hold themselves to some perfect standard, which let's frank it is, let's, let's face it is, is frankly, uh, ridiculous that they won't have the, the moral leg to stand on to say the things that they believe. And here's the interesting thing, which is that I think it's actually the opposite. I think when you have a nuanced view of situations because you have tried both sides of the situation, you actually have more moral standing than if you are trying to perfectly hold to something without having explored the ideas of the other side. And I think that as a culture is where we need to move towards where we can appreciate the other side's opinions and even have a mix of opinions ourselves and recognize that that actually gives us more of a moral standing, specifically because it's coming from a place of experience and not a knee-jerk reaction or a place of fear. Thanks for listening, guys. Talk tomorrow.